Good evening, everyone. I have good news. You can probably hear my good news in my voice because it's the fact that I have a voice tonight and I couldn't be happier to finally be able to talk. I like to talk and I like to be understood. And I know it's been sort of difficult the past couple of days. Thank you for not kicking me out yet. And I hope the things that we talk about tonight are both beneficial and well understood by all. We're going to be looking at the church at Ephesus tonight, as we've talked about uh, at the beginning of the week and considering our topic for this week being the tipping point as we view ourselves in the midst of the spiritual warfare in which Satan is on one side pulling us to his side to eternal death and damnation. And on the other hand, we have God who is begging and pleading and inviting us to come to him to receive rest from our weariness and our trouble and toils. And we have to make a decision of where we're going to stand. If we're going to allow ourselves to be pushed and pulled in the direction of the world or to walk purposefully into the arms of our God. And so as we've studied on Sunday, we looked at some modern problems that we face with postmodernism and the idea that truth is relative and it's not absolute. We can't really know what it is. And whatever you believe is good for you and what I believe is good for me. And let's just agree to disagree. We saw the problems with that. And yesterday we moved into talking about the church at Corinth. And as we've we've established tonight about maturity and unity and love and how those three things can really solve a number of problems, whatever the the details of those problems may be. Tonight we're going to take a little different approach when we look at the church at Ephesus, though. I want to ask a question. How many of you have ever watched a time-lapse video or seen time-lapse photography. Don't raise your hand. You know, we're not going to take a real count here. But if you've ever watched one, you know that a time-lapse is where you take a very long time videoing something or photographing something, and then you play it back in a very short time frame, like it's sped up, right? For me, this happened when I saw a spider weaving an orb web. And I thought, I'm going to pull out my iPhone because it's got this fancy little button on it where it does time lapse. And I stood there for a good, it felt like 10 minutes. My arm was trembling, filming this spider make a web. And then when I hit the play button, it lasted about 13 seconds and I was disappointed. But we know what time lapse photography is because it gives us in a short time frame What happens over a very long period of time? I want us to do that with the church at Ephesus tonight. We're going to take a look at what the New Testament says about it over a long period of time. And even what happens after the New Testament record ends. And we're going to look at that in a really short period of time comparatively. And so while we think about the New New Testament churches that we could talk about, Ephesus stands out as as preeminent. It's mentioned so many times through the New Testament. I want to talk about Ephesus just for a second. We've got a a, a very um, blown up map here. And if you're looking on the far left hand side of your map, whichever side it is, I learned that if you use the laser, it doesn't appear on both screens. So I'm not going to do that. And you see on the east, on the western coast of what's listed as Asia here, you can see Ephesus. There's a line going through it because Paul traveled through it. And you see some facts about that. People who went and ministered with the church at Ephesus include Paul and Timothy and John. Letters that were written to the church there or about the church there or mention the church there include Ephesians, obviously. What about First and Second Timothy? Did you realize that that was about the church at Ephesus? That's where Timothy was when Paul was writing to him. First, second, and third John. John would have been living in Ephesus at that time and writing to the church there. And of course, it's mentioned again 
in the first few chapters of the book of Revelation as one of the seven churches in Asia. And so as such, we understand that this is a popular and important church in the New Testament. At the time, it would have been about the third largest in the world with a population of somewhere around 300,000 people. And as we know from Acts chapter 19, this is also where the temple of Artemis or Diana was. Remember, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And we remember the, the silversmith who really got upset because of what Paul and others were preaching there. Really what this was, was a city of tourism. And it was a city that was a very wealthy tourist destination. And if you were a silversmith or someone who made these, these souvenirs, you were doing pretty well. Other things that we know about the church there would have been that, uh, would have been that people were coming in to, to worship Diana there. And they were making these pilgrimages and to come and to be a part of this situation. What we want to do in our work tonight is to look at the time from before this church was established and as it grew and what continued to happen. And the applications that I want us to make tonight is to understand that while we don't necessarily get to see the whole expanse of a local church in a time-lapse fashion, there's a lot of things we can learn about the destination and the, the end outcomes of a church and what we need to be doing along the way to maintain strength along the pathway. And so let's jump in. The early work, this is about 52 to 56 AD. Paul is on his missionary journeys and he's on his second missionary journey when he visits Ephesus. So Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18, we get down to verse 19, the first half of the chapter. Paul is in Corinth. He experiences some difficulties there. He's fearing for his life. And God says, don't worry that go on speaking and don't, don't be silent for no one will attack you or harm. You have many in this city who are my people. We get down to verse 19 and it writes, they came to Ephesus and he, Paul, left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined, but on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. And so he visits for a small period of time on his way back to Jerusalem. And at the end of this chapter, we see the second journey end and the third journey begin. And right into chapter 19, we see him going back. When we get into chapter 19, he spends two to three years in Ephesus. So he sees them at the end of the second journey and at the beginning of the third journey. Two to three years, that's a good length of time for Paul to stay in a place and to work. And you can imagine the type of work that he's doing there. And so what he's doing is he's got his hands full refuting the false doctrines, the pagan practices. As we talked about, Ephesus was popular for two big reasons. One was commercial trade, tourism, and the other was pagan religious worship. And really they went hand in hand, but that's the two aspects that really drew people to that town. And during the Roman period, which would have been in the first century and, and a little bit earlier and later... It was the center for this goddess worship, this Greek god Artemis, or the Romans called her Diana. Now you've got to picture what the situation in Ephesus would have been like. We often talk about what it must have been like to be in Corinth with all the pagan worship. But now uh, think about what it was like to be in Ephesus, where in the temple the worship was burning incense and playing music, which resulted in the people being charged up emotionally. 
and charged up emotionally into reaching this state in which they were committing these shameless acts that we won't even mention tonight, but we could imagine. And these practices were being engaged in by the priests and the priestesses of Diana and Artemis while we've got the other merchants hawking off their souvenirs for other people. And so business is good. But imagine that's a, probably a pretty difficult place to preach the gospel. You've got people that are worked up in pagan worship and, and doing these shameless acts and people that are just so interested in making money off of this situation you know, I can't imagine what the work like there must have been. Look in verse 8 of chapter 19. Acts 19, verse 8. Paul enters the synagogue and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And so what we see here is Paul was driven from the synagogue. The Jews who worshipped in Ephesus, they had had enough of Paul. He said, that's fine. I'll just go over here to this Gentile school, the school of Tyrannus, the hall of Tyrannus. And he's working there. And he stayed there for two years. And the text says that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Gentiles. What we're going to learn is that Paul used Ephesus as sort of a home base for his work in that area. And he taught in that area and, and he, he made sure, as it says, that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. That's a pretty big statement to be made there. And this is the type of work that Paul is achieving in this worldly pagan society. Ephesus is off to a good start. If they've got someone like Paul that's there working with them and he's teaching them and they're having success and the word of God is being preached and people are being converted to the cross of Christ. That's a wonderful start in the early work there. And so we see that he was successful. Now, later on, we see the result of this in verse 18 of this chapter. It says many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices and a number of them who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them inside of all and they counted the value of them and and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver so the word of the lord continued to increase and prevail mightily that's the type of work that's being achieved in this pagan society that's wonderful but we also notice that the the uh, the sales of the souvenirs started to fall off probably proportional to the number of people that were being converted to Christ. And this caused an uproar. The end of the chapter, uh, from verse 21 really to the end of the chapter, uh, there was this situation where Paul, in his eagerness, said, oh, no, 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 I want to use this as an opportunity to preach. I said, no, if you go out there, they'll kill you. So let's not do that. Let's, Let's get you out of this situation. But it's after this that Paul leaves for Macedonia, And he leaves Ephesus after the three years that he'd spent there. And during the stay at Ephesus, he writes the letter to the to Corinthians, the first letter. And what we see there when he leaves is a church that for three years has been learning at the feet of Paul and of Priscilla and Aquila and others. This is a place that is primed for growth. They are ready. The soil is fertile and it is ready to be planted. It's ready to take that work and to really run with it. That's the early work of the church at Ephesus. Isn't that great? Have you ever been a part of anything that's remotely similar to this? A place where people are eager to hear the truth in the face of a worldly society. And they're receptive to it. 
You know, anytime we see people come out of the worldliness all around us and accept the cross and accept the conversion to Christ and changing their life for him, we get just a taste of what Paul was seeing in Ephesus. And that's not to minimize what we see. It's wonderful anytime we see that because the gospel is still as effective today as it was then. We would even note that the church has elders by the time he leaves. And we know that because a little bit later he comes back and talks to those elders, right? And this is all over about a four-year period. So let's move on. What's the next picture that we see of the church? Well, after Paul left, after he worked hard to establish the church for those three or four years, there's elders there, there's people that are working there on his behalf. And we then see later that the church is thriving, the next chapter in the book of Acts, and we're not going to read the whole chapter, but we know about the midway point of the chapter, verse 17. Paul goes back as he's making his final trek back to Jerusalem before his arrest and the trials and what really mirrors in a lot of ways what Christ went through the last time he went to Jerusalem. Uh, we see that he stops and speaks with these elders here, and this would be around 57 A.D., and when you read through this, you see the love that they have for one another. Isn't it wonderful when you see that these, these grown men, they are weeping by the time they get to the end of the chapter. Look at verse 37. There was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. These are grown men who, who had this bond that they shared in Christ who had been brought out of worldliness and who appreciated the life that they had left behind and what they had in Christ. And the man who had brought them to Christ, they're not going to see him again. And these are men who are strong in the faith by this point, and they are, they are responsible for the souls of the people at Ephesus. And work is going well, but we see the love that they have for one another. We also see the spirituality of these men. In verse 36, it said, when he said all these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And that's another wonderful example of the power of prayer and how that's something that we ought to treat as a very important part of our lives. At any time there's a big decision to make, any time there's a small decision to make, whenever we're grateful for what God has given us, prayer needs to be there. It needs to be a part of who we are. But what we see by the time we get to the end of chapter 20 is a strong church where the word has been planted and it has been growing because it has been carefully tended by the shepherds there. They had been working diligently. Teaching had been done. And we see a church that is brought to the point of strength. And it is healthy. And it is good. Now, a little bit later, when Paul had left them about five years after that, he writes the letter of Ephesians. And what do we know about the letter of Ephesians except that it is a very... It is a, a very positive letter. Look in the letter of, to the Ephesians with me. We'll turn over to Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, look in verse 15. Paul writes there, For this reason, because I have heard of what I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. And then he goes on to say, Because of that, I don't stop giving thanks. I'm always giving thanks for you because I've heard of how strong you are and the love that you have for everyone and for the saints there. What a wonderful thing to be hearing about a church that you've been working at. 
You imagine what Paul said towards the end of Second Corinthians. He said, you know, I've been shipwrecked. I've been stoned. I've been hungry. I've been cold. I've faced wild animals. And he says, above all that, I've got the anxiety of my concern for the churches. That's the thing that bothers him the most is he's worried about the Christians and whether or not they're standing strong and standing for the truth. But when Paul hears about the Ephesians, he says, I don't stop giving thanks. I'm so happy to hear this report about you. It's always wonderful when we hear good news about churches and other places that we have ties with and we hear good things and we we give thanks to God for that. By the time we get to chapter four, we've mentioned chapter four a little earlier in the week as some commendations for how we ought to grow. But I believe Paul's writing this because he sees there is organization and there's good work being done. In Ephesians chapter four, verse one, it says, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And it goes on 11 through 16. He talks about all of the different workers that God has given the church and specifically the church there at Ephesus to work and how they're growing together into the fullness of maturity in Christ. And they're speaking the truth in love so that they, they grow together. And they're all doing their part like a body where every joint's working like it should so that it can be built up in love. He said things are going well. So what we've been seeing is during these early years, they had been working hard. And by the time we get to the end of the book, Paul says, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. I think that's what he thought about the church at Ephesus, that they love the Lord with love incorruptible. He said, you guys are doing great. Keep up the good work. What a wonderful thing. He's commending their sincerity. This is not like the church at Corinth where they're full of divisions. And he's saying, I was there with you for a good long time. And, you know, I've heard all of these disappointing things. And you've got these things that you need to be fixing. For us, the Ephesians, he says, I miss you guys. Love you guys. Think about you so much. I pray about you. I'm so happy to hear how things are going. Keep up the good work. I appreciate your sincerity. I know you truly love the Lord and that you love the saints. That's wonderful news. But we understand that a lot of this is because of the teaching that had been going on. Some different workers that had been there, we mentioned that as he writes later in First and Second Timothy, he writes to Timothy and he says, I urged you as I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. Timothy, stay in Ephesus. And he reminds us about Apollos who is working and Priscilla and Aquila, uh, Aquila and Priscilla who are working. Back in chapter 18 of Acts, they go to Ephesus and they meet Apollos there and they teach him the, the right way of the, the baptism of Christ. And we see all the people that have been, been scattering seed at Ephesus and watering all along the way. And God truly was giving the increase. I want to take just the time out. At this point, because the next picture we see is a little surprising based on what we've seen up to this point, because what we've seen so far is a successful mission work in which Paul goes to a pagan society and is able to convert people to the truth about Christ. And later on, he says, things are going great. I see that you're growing. I see that you are sincere and I appreciate your love for Christ and for others. 
They've had a lot of good teachers in their presence, people who are working in the church there and teaching in the homes. And you can imagine the home Bible studies they must have been having and all of the good things that were going on there. And when the book of Ephesians comes to a close, you close that letter and you just think, wow, can you imagine being a part of the church at Ephesus? How encouraging that would have been. Have you ever been in an Ephesus? When I look at the church in Northfield, I think I think it's like Ephesus from the book of Ephesians, from from in the book of Acts. Some good things going on here. A lot of really good things. But as we move on to the next picture that we get of the church there, this is where we need to start answering some questions that are going to come up. And the question that comes up is what happened? Because if Paul is working there in the 50s and the 60s, about 30 years later. Now, many of, you peop- many of you here tonight have been members of the church at Northfield or was it North Meadow before that for the past 30 years you've been around. Or you've been in Murfreesboro for 30 years or you've been in the area and you, you've been a Christian for that long and you have, have been a part of a work and you've seen how things can go up and down from time to time. But imagine hearing about the church at Ephesus in this way. Later on, about 96 AD, we see John being banished to the island of Patmos. And there he writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and Revelation. And at this point in his life, he's very old. He's very feeble. And we understand that tradition tells us that he's too feeble to walk and the church members would have to carry him to assembly and he would admonish the members there as his little children. And he would call them his children in the faith. And he says, there's no, nothing greater than to hear that your children walk in the faith. We've got old, old John, the apostle of love. And we see the way that he's looking at the church there. And so the letters uh, of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John were written while he was living in Ephesus or Patmos and probably to the Ephesian Christians, even though it's not specifically mentioned. And then later on, he gives his assessment, or the Lord gives his assessment through John. So we turn to Revelation. We know the passage here, don't we? As the Lord Christ is giving his assessments of these seven churches in Asia... He starts there with Ephesus. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And when we start reading this, remember, this is not obscure Ephesus that's only mentioned in Revelation, and we don't know anything else about them. This is powerhouse Ephesus from the book of Acts and from the letter to the Ephesians where Paul and Timothy and Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos had been teaching and strengthening and working with the Christians there. They had strong elders that loved Paul and that loved the Lord. Ephesians, or Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. That's wonderful, wonderful commendation to them. And verse 4 starts with a a frightening word. He says, but I have this against you, 
that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the work you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you have this, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. A lot of good things that were said here. But some frightening things that were said here as well. He compliments them on their works. But he says, but the things that you are doing that are good things, it seems like you've lost your true sense of motivation. It should be motivated on the love that you had at first. The love for Christ. The love for one another. Have you ever felt yourself doing something that seemed very religious and good, but realize you're doing it out of a sense of, more of a sense of justice than out of a sense of love for that individual? I have. You know, it's easy when you preach to get up and talk sometimes about something you've heard about or a problem you know is going on around you. And you sort of get a sense of justice that you're teaching the truth. And maybe you don't have the love that you ought to have with that. And it's possible for an entire church to be characterized this way. That's what the whole church at Ephesus is characterized as in Revelation chapter 2. Is this the same picture of the church at Ephesus that we had before? It's the same church. Maybe a few different people in there, but maybe the same people just advance in years a little bit. But we don't see quite the amount of thriving that was going on before. If we're looking at the lifespan of a plant, we see it sprouting up from a seed and the first sprouts and growing up and blooming and spreading and being beautiful. And then we see it like when it stops raining or when the fall comes around, it starts to die and get a little brown and wilt. That's what we're seeing with the church at Ephesus. But he tells them in verse 5, Here's what you have to do. You have to remember where you were. Remember where you fell from. And you need to repent. And you need to do the works you used to be doing. And do them for the reasons you used to be doing them. It's got to be motivated out of love. Repent. Remember, repeat the first works. What do we see next? Well, that's the last we have in our Bibles about the church at Ephesus. But history tells us. That by the time we get to about the year 200 A.D., that's the last we hear the church at Ephesus. Dead. That's a scary thought. Because within about 150 years, we have the complete lifespan of a first century church. One that, by the way, had apostolic teaching in its presence. Inspired authors teaching them on a regular basis. Multiple letters being written by people who had sat at the feet of Jesus Christ himself. People who had witnessed him in his life and his death and his resurrection. They're in that church. Yet over the course of about 150 years, for whatever reason, the church is no more. Now, this isn't a new thing. It's not the first time that we've seen a religious, God-fearing people die out over the course of time. We see that in the book of Joshua. We see it in the book of Judges. We see it when they leave Egypt to start with. We see it time and time again over the course of events through the history of Israel. But you know what? When you make it more relevant to us, it's a church like we are. Christians like we are. Believers in Christ, like we are, 
Yet over a course of time, they died. We don't know whether or not they corrected their problems or that maybe they were poisoned by some other false doctrine, but history says that they eventually passed into apostasy and Ephesus became known as a leading city for the early Roman church. And that's not what we wanted to hear. So we see this picture of a dead plant that's just dried up and blowing away. We need to make some applications, though. Make some applications or it's just a really sort of a depressing night, right? There's some good things that we can learn from this, though. If we've seen this time-lapse photography here, isn't that neat? Just in a short amount of time, we've seen this 150-year picture of what can happen to a local church. Now, before we say, oh, well, that's a long time. We don't really have to worry about that. You know, 150 years, that's not really that far removed. We'll have great-grandchildren, probably, that are alive in 150 years. People in our family that we might meet in the flesh will be alive 150 years from now. What will the church be like when they're growing up, when they're leading the church? And if we think about the church here at Northfield, what stage of the photography would we be in today? Where would we find ourselves? Are we thriving? Are we starting to wilt a little bit? Are we on the upswing? I hope we're sort of in the upswing or thriving portion. I think there's a lot of good going on here. But you know what? We need to remember the same things that John told the church in Revelation chapter 2. Number one, we need to remember our purpose. That's the problem. That's, that's what happened to the church at Ephesus. They forgot what they were all about. They forgot their purpose. And their purpose was to uphold and maintain truth at all costs. We talked last night about unity and pursuing unity through love and maturity. We talked about when division arises that's of no real important matter, that we need to just overlook some of those things and bear with one another in love. But if it's something that's a matter of doctrine, if there's a false doctrine, we need to remove ourselves from that. We need to get rid of that and hold to the pattern of sound teaching that's been left for us. Our purpose as the Lord's church is to be, to be a pillar and buttress of the truth and to be a place in this community where people know that the truth of Christ will be taught and will be lived out in the life of his, his body there. And also our purpose is to diligently teach the next generation. Do you think that might have been part of the problem? That once Paul stopped coming around, once Timothy moved on and Priscilla and Aquila retired and moved on and all these people had less of a direct hand in the church there that maybe they were a little less diligent in teaching the next generation. It's not hard to imagine that happening. Like we mentioned a moment ago, that happened so many times through the Old Testament. And there were whole generations that rose up that didn't know God because their parents didn't teach them about God. People who had never read the book of the law. You think, wow, I just can't believe they let it get that bad. Well, you know what? Believe it because it could happen. It could happen today. Our purpose is to uphold the truth and maintain it and to teach diligently the next generation to uphold and maintain the truth of Christ. We need to remember our purpose, but we also need to be developing leadership now. Develop it early. A wise man once said the best time to plant a tree is 30 years ago. The best time to start preparing to be an elder is a long time ago or to be a preacher or to be a Bible class teacher or someone who is uh, designed, who is, who is going to be an effective worker for the Lord. 
He also said the second best time is now. If you didn't do it then, you can do it now. But you need to get busy. You need to be working hard. And we need to keep on working on the next generation and constantly working and on preparing the new people, the young people, the new people in Christ to be leaders in the Lord's work. We also need to be reminded that our focus is not simply to maintain the truth here in this building or here among the people that are present tonight or who are present who that are in the directory or on in the roster. But it's to be present and to maintain and uphold the truth and to build leadership in the people that are outside of the body here. People that are out in the world. Imagine if Paul had gone to Ephesus and just tried to encourage the Christians that were already there. That would have been one small little church in a really difficult city. But that's not what he did. Even when he was kicked out of the synagogue, he said, there, there are people in this town I know that need the gospel, and there are people here that will be receptive to the gospel, and I'm going to go to them, and I'm going to teach them. And then they're going to learn, and they're going to teach other people, and it's going to keep going. We need to be focused on people out there as much or more than people in here. We, we can maintain things here, but we've got to be working on the people that are outside. We've got to pray like those Ephesian elders pray with Paul. Do you think they just prayed, Paul, I hope things go well with you. But do you think they also prayed for the work there at Ephesus that they all shared together in, in helping to grow? The growth, true growth. As much fun as it is to see Christians move in from other places, true growth occurs when people who were not previously in Christ are converted to Christ. When people become Christians, that's when we see growth. It's encouraging. And it certainly strengthens a group when Christians move to the area. And that's great. We love to see that happen. But we can't say the church is growing because other Christians happen to be moving here. We say the church is growing because the church here is working. The word of the Lord is being taught in the community. And people from the world have accepted Christ and are being converted to him. Their lives are changing through the word of the cross. That's where growth occurs. And so tonight we've looked in a really quick way. Over the church at Ephesus, how it began, how it thrived and grew, and how it began to sort of wilt and eventually died over the course of about 150 years. One thing is for certain, though, even though the church at Ephesus might have ended, the Lord's church will never end. It will never be destroyed. It cannot die. It cannot be extinguished by any worldly force. It is the plan of God to save men through the blood of his Son, the church that was purchased with that blood, as Paul reminded the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. But if we're not careful, if we're not diligent, if we're not active and eagerly working every day, the church could die here. It could. I hope that's not the case, and I hope it doesn't happen anytime soon or ever, but we must, we're the ones that are responsible for that, whether or not it happens. We must be working We must be diligent. We've looked around and we can see churches that have closed their doors that at one point were powerhouses in the community. There were strong churches. And over the course of decades that go by, you say, you know, I just don't know what happened. They used to be so strong over there. And they're just not there anymore. Well, things probably happened like happened at Ephesus. Perhaps they forgot their first love, their purpose, their meaning. And they stopped doing those first works. We must always remember our first love. And our first love is Jesus Christ. Which is funny because he 
loved us first. And he paid the price before we loved him so that we would love him and appreciate what he has done for us. Remember your first love. Be willing to repent just like the church there was commanded to repent. And always go back to those first works of discipleship. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means to live your life the way that Jesus lived, to see other people the way that Jesus saw them, and to help people make their lives change by the blood of Christ. And if that's something that interests you tonight, if you want to see your life changed in a way that you cannot possibly imagine by having your sins removed from you, because you have admitted and confessed to all that Jesus is your Lord and Master, that you've repented of the sins that you've committed, you say, I'm tired of living that way, I'm not going to do those things anymore, and I want to live for Jesus even today. You've heard the message of the cross and who Jesus was and what he did for you, and you've been willing to be baptized, to have your sins washed away, your life will be changed. And you'll be a new person. And you will have friends and family that you never knew possible. And you'll have joy and peace like you've never felt before. And you can have hope for the first time in your life. Hope that no matter what happens in this life, no matter what knocks you down and drags you down the road and makes you feel miserable, no matter what happens, you can have a hope that no one can take away. That your father is there in heaven waiting with his arms outstretched to see you one day. And if you want to see him, if we can help you to make your life right tonight, come right now while we stand and sing.